Church of Beaufort on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 or through the internet at wagp.net, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular issue that you want doctrinal clarity on or a challenge you're facing in your personal life or ministry or church. And if I can be of help by God's grace, all you need to do, again, is pick up the 843 exchange and call 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, at WAGP.net. And let me just say, when you call live, we do give preference to live callers. Some are more comfortable just dictating their questions. Others want to remain on the air live for clarity. So however we can help you, we will do our best by God's grace. And uh, many times, too, people submit questions and they can't stay to listen. They're at work and that kind of thing. And we always email them back, uh, letting them know that their question was answered. All right, let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Scott out of Beaufort, South Carolina. He writes, Pastor, are you aware of the Jewish belief that creation would go on for 7,000 years from the date of creation and that the last 1,000 years of that would be the millennial reign of Christ. Is there anything that supports that biblically? And if so, where do we fall in that timeline? No, it's a good question, and it's not precisely what's taught. They say um, in the Talmud, so maybe I need to define some terms here. The word Talmud is a Hebrew word that means learning or instruction. And the Talmud is made up of two parts. It's made up of the Mishnah and the Gemara. So in Jewish belief, and rightly so, the first five books God gave Moses directly, and he wrote them down by inspiration of the Spirit. Every single word there in the Torah, the Pentateuch for five, Pentateuchos, uh, the five books of the law, Tukos. And so we, that's the Greek title. And so interestingly, in our Bible, our English Bibles, the first five books are from the Septuagint titles. In either case... Uh, he wrote that down. That's the Torah. Uh, They also say that God explained to Moses the meaning of certain laws that he recorded, and he in turn explained them to the people. And I have no doubt that he expounded the meaning of passages, but they argue that the oral law, what was passed down from Moses to Joshua all the way to rabbis throughout the centuries, that that's equally inspired by God. Well, after the Jews were dispersed in 70 AD, there was some concern, hey, you know, we're spread out everywhere. We need to protect the oral law. And so they wrote it down. That became the Talmud. Now, to make it more complicated, there's actually two Talmuds. 
there is what we call the Babylonian Talmud, and there is the Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, the Babylonian Talmud predates the Jerusalem Talmud, but they're written around 200. And some would have problems with the name Jerusalem Talmud, and, and I suppose rightly so in that they would call it the Land of Israel Talmud or the Palestinian Tal- Talmud because by this time, of course, Rome had renamed Israel into Palestine, uh, and um, so it's called that. And no Jews were living in Jerusalem when the Talmud was written. Now, when you think about the Talmud, the Mishnah, the oral law, it's made up of two parts, as I said. The Mishnah is identical in both Talmuds. The Gemara, which is basically a commentary on the oral law, is different in two books. But they both affirm in this case that uh, up until 6,000 years, the Messiah could come back. So they don't say it has to be 6,000 years. But until 6,000 years, and the analogy that they use is that of the Sabbath. They would say, well, the Sabbath starts at sundown. However, if a person wants to start his Sabbath early, he's free to do that. And by analogy, they would argue that if Messiah wants to return before the 6,000 years, then indeed he could do that. Now, let me just say the Talmud is no more inspired than the Quran or the Book of Mormon, or any other book. In fact, there are things that are written in the Talmud that are in direct contradiction to Scripture. For instance, if you speak today to a modern Orthodox Jew, and they are giving you a reason for what makes a person Jewish ethnically, they say it's passed down through the woman. Well, the Bible teaches it's not passed down through the woman. Where do they get that? They get that from the oral law. The Bible is clear by example that Jewishness is passed down not by the mother, but by the father. And so Joseph could marry a believing Egyptian and have Jewish children. Moses could marry uh, a non-Jewish descendant of Abraham and have Jewish children. Why? Because Jewishness is not determined by the mother, but by the father. And so with that said, The Talmud, and I could give dozens of examples, are in many places in direct contradiction not only to the Old Testament, but also to the New Testament as well. Now, according to um, tradition, Jewish tradition, they say that the world was created 3761, they would say BCE, before the uh, Common Era. They divide the calendar, of course, before the Common Era and after the Common Era. And of course, uh, that's not a problem for me. I use before Christ, Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord, A.D. 2023. In either case, it was the resurrection of Christ and his presence on the earth that ultimately split time down in half. And so based on the Jewish calendar, the 6,000th year is about 218 or 17 years away. And so, but again, they could, they would say that, <clears throat> that Messiah could come, but the, again, they're, they're making a parallel here. And it's interesting in some respects because, uh, the millennial reign of Christ is a thousand years, mele from the Latin thousand on year. So a thousand years. So we speak of the millennium from a Latin word and we use it in our English Bibles and, and rightly so to describe what God has recorded there that Messiah will literally rule and reign for 1,000 years. So that's still in the future. And so they would say, well, just as in six days, uh, God worked and man works, and he 
uh, gave a seventh day for rest. And Moses in Exodus 20 goes back to the days of creation. By the way, these people who argue for an old earth or, you know, large portions of time between the days of creation contradict directly Moses because Moses didn't teach there were big gaps of time between the days of creation or that the days of creation were long periods of time. Based on divine commentary that the Spirit wrote through him, there were six literal 24-hour days in which the world was created. And so the analogy, they would say, is God worked on six days. God is working for 6,000 years. And on the seventh day and the final thousand years, so to speak, because a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, not contradicting the literal days of creation, they uh, would reason that uh, the Messiah will reign for a thousand years. So I find that interesting because nowhere, nowhere in the Old Testament is the length of the Messiah's reign given. But we know in the New Testament, it, it is indeed a thousand years. So there came a time in American history, it was called the Scopes Trial. Many of you are familiar with it. There's a hardcore uh, pagan by the name of Clarence Darrow. Uh, we brought our children one time to that uh, town in Tennessee and went into the courtroom and saw the logistics of it. And he debated a very famous uh, politician by the name of William Jennings Bryan. He was a very, very intelligent man, but Darrow tried to confuse him on the stand. And fortunately, uh, he didn't have real clear answers, but he keyed off of a, a time of creation that a gentleman by the name of Bishop James Usher wrote. Usher was a converted Roman Catholic, and he uh, started and helped lead the Anglo-Irish Church. In fact, he was the archbishop, and so they did have an Episcopalian form of government. In either case, he was a real scholar. He uh, attended Trinity College, got in like at the age of 13, and he was ordained by the age of 20. And, of course, the primary opponents of biblical Christianity, so we're talking about the Protestant Church, in Ireland, and the primary opponents of biblical Christianity were a group known as the Jesuits, and the Jesuits were started by a pope in deference to the Protestant Reformation to try to defend Roman Catholic doctrine. I studied under the largest community of Jesuits in the world when I was at Boston College. They're an interesting group of guys, and so he wanted to, <clears throat> in a very scholarly way, because these guys were like super scholarly, uh, they have a minimum of 12 years of formal education, quote-unquote, after what we would call today high school, to be able to be considered to become a Jesuit priest. So they're highly educated men, and some have more than that. I remember I had a guy by the name of uh, Father Flanagan. He was a fr I, I, I took a course by him my freshman year, and, and his title was Dr. Flanagan. I said, well, what kind of doctorate do you have? Uh, well, he said, well, how many? I said, how many? He said, I have a PhD in philosophy. I have a DDS, a dental surgery degree. So he's a medical doctor as well. And he had a third doctorate as a doctor of jurisprudence. So he had three doctoral degrees. So that kind of educational um, prowess was not uncommon there at Boston College. With that said, uh, these guys are lost. These guys deny the authority of Scripture. And so Usher, trying to take a scholarly approach, did incredible amount of details. 
he wrote a book called The Annals. And in The Annals, he said that the day of creation was 4004 BC. And so if you have an older edition of the King James Bible, in fact, all the King James Bibles that were issued by the Gideons until the early 70s had that footnote in it, the day of creation, 4004 BC. I was speaking at a Methodist church once in, in, um, Virginia, and the man thought that was inspired. And I said, well, that note is not inspired as such. That was a date that Bishop Usher came up with, but I don't think he was that far off. Now, Luther, he was also a scholar of sorts, and he liked round numbers. And he said, well, it's around 4,000 BC, because maybe there's a few generations where we cannot pinpoint the exact year. Uh, Kepler, who was the great astronomer, uh, he concluded that the day of creation was 3992. So if you use Usher's uh, dating, it would be 60, we'd be in the year 6027. So we don't have to wait another 217 years like they do in the Jewish calendar. Uh, in Martin Luther's uh, calculation, we'd be at 6023. At Kepler's, we'd be at 6015. Look, we do not know the exact year of creation. It cannot precisely, but it's right around there. We can know that from what we do have in the biblical accounts. But there's nothing in Scripture that says that this world needs to go for some 6,000 years, and then uh, we have to uh, bring in the Messiah. There's many problems with that. And by the way, when Y2K came around the year 2000, people got real excited and said, well, you know, not only is there going to be some disaster with the computers of the world, this is going to bring in, you know, the rapture of the church and the Antichrist, and, you know, 4,000 years before Christ, the world was created, and now we're going to hit the year 2000 and 6,000, and, you know, there's real problems with that. One, you can't set dates. Number two, Christ taught that. You can't set dates. And number two, it destroys the doctrine of imminency in the truest sense. It maybe not destroys it, but it certainly um, uh, rewrites it, because it appears after the rapture of the church, there's a short time, weeks, days, months, I doubt centuries, which you would need if you somehow ascribe to this way of thinking, at least if you followed the Jewish calendar, because, again, they would say he could come Messiah before or at the 6,000-year mark, but still, if he came at, then you have 217 years to wait before the Messiah could return. And yet the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ. And as you study the events that unfold after the rapture, which we just spent 31 weeks studying, and if you go to communitybiblechurch.us or search the scriptures, all of those messages are now available. It appears that the time frame is very short, that there's a short throw of time after the rapture, there is a space of time because the Antichrist then has to come on the scene and provide peace. And so I have suggested that probably that's when the great war of Gog and Magog that's specifically mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, right down to the nations involved, a war that has never taken place in either biblical or recorded human history. But it is going to take place, and I think that would be the... Um, the impetus for what would follow after, for a man to come on the scene to present world peace. And with so many of these Muslim nations that are described, because we know the nations that are engaged, and they represent largely the Muslim populations of the world, and for God to put them down, it would be uh, an easy plan to then 
build the uh, the next temple uh, on the Temple Mount. Lay all that aside. The Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ. And so you don't want to get caught up in Jewish tradition in the Talmud that is filled with errors, that has made wrong conclusions, even from their Old Testament, of how God saves a person. Your authority is Scripture alone, and that's where you need to start. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl. I believe we have Keith live on live one. Good morning, Keith. You're live with Pastor Carl. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Um, appreciate your ministry. You've, uh, you've been a, a great inspiration for me and my family and, and my Bible study, which in turn goes to my church. Um, Wonderful. I have a question Praise for you on, um, Go ahead. On Jeremiah 3131, 31, yes. uh, the new covenant, where it's speaking, I believe, to Israel, which I believe they'll receive probably uh, during the tribulation once they're saved. Uh, we as the body of Christ are recipients of of the new covenant. My question, if you could speak in some detail, to, is is the exact same covenant that they will get, or is there some variations in that covenant? Oh, that's a great question. So let me just turn there and. You know, God speaks of a new covenant, and when we think sometimes of the Bible, we think of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word testament in Greek is diatheke, and it means the new deal, the the new promise, the new uh, administration. So the Bible is really divided into two administrations, the old administration and then the promised coming administration that the Messiah would usher in. And there are some critical passages that underscore uh, this new covenant, for instance, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And then it says you'll live in the land that I gave your forefathers. And, and so when you study like the new covenant, the new deal, the new promise that could not be enacted until the Messiah came. Uh, God unfolds it first with the regathering of the Jewish people physically, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. So first they have to be physically regathered. And then he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And so water is often used as an illusion for cleansing and of God the Holy Spirit. And then the next verse, I will give you a new heart, new spirit, replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you so you can walk in my statutes. And so then the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, where you see this process that is unfolding, the bones are regathered in the the muscles are put on, but there comes a point when life is breathed into them. And so that's what the Jews have yet to see. But God is miraculously doing in our day. And when you go even further into Ezekiel 38, after many days, you will be summoned in the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword. And so again, this is the battle of Gog and Magog, and he's addressing the chief prince Gog 
who's a person, not a country, and in the latter years. And so throughout the Old Testament, you find that God at the end of time does this work of regathering the Jews. He reestablishes them in the land, and that becomes the basis for this battle that you read about. So I'm saying all that to say this happens at the end of time for the people of Israel. And so here in Jeremiah 31, 31, that Keith from Kentucky specifically asks, Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So remember, the kingdom had split north and south. The northern ten tribes were called Israel. The southern two tribes called Judah. So he wants to underscore that this is going to be for all the tribes of Israel. Not like the covenant I made with your fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. We call that the Mosaic covenant, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. They were unfaithful. God was faithful to them. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why not? For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. So it won't be this unique, special few that can approach God like a Moses, but it will be for all the people from the greatest to the least. How will this be possible? For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And that's how it's possible for us today, Jew or Gentile, who believe. It's not until your iniquity is forgiven and you're imputed with the righteousness of Christ that you're indwelt. And so Paul can say, you also, having heard the message of truth, the gospel, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise for the day of redemption. So you hear the message, the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection, which is the power of God unto salvation. And the moment you believe, you are credited, Paul says in Romans 3, with the righteousness of the Lord, because he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we could become what we weren't before, the righteousness of God in Christ. And so when we are credited with his righteousness, now for the first time ever, we can become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the New Testament affirms that this is being fulfilled partially in the church today. Unless any think otherwise, Paul spends a whole chapter in Romans 11 to say that uh, we as Gentiles have been grafted in because of the unbelief of the Jews. And then he says, well, what will happen when the Jews actually nationally turn to the Lord and believe on him? True Israel, as he will call them. Well, it's going to be a great harvest of souls. If, if God can do this with Gentiles, what will he do with Jews? And, of course, that's the picture in the Revelation. The picture in the Revelation is that in the time of Jacob's trouble, called the Great Tribulation, called the Dark Side of the Day of the Lord, a number of titles given for that seven-year period, uh, the Jews are converted, and what do they do? They preach the gospel to the whole world, and the greatest future revival that has ever happened in recorded history will happen during this seven-year period. Billions will be lost, but a great multitude of people will be saved. Now, the amillennials would say that this promise is fulfilled in the church, and God is done with Israel. He is not. And you're asking specifically, is there some benefit that they have that we don't have? Well, yes and no. In terms of spiritually, no. Spiritually speaking, 
we are recipients of the identical covenant. And so Jesus at the Lord's table says, this is the blood of the new covenant. We celebrate that every time we take the Lord's table. We are affirming that we are recipients and beneficiaries of a new covenant. But lest anyone think that God has eradicated this, that the church has replaced Israel, he then says in verse 35 of Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. He's underscoring the power and greatness of God. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, they can't, and the foundations of the earth searched out below, they can't, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. So this is an unconditional covenant. And there are aspects when the Jews do come to faith, there are some promises concerning the land that God made in the Old Testament that for the first time they'll live in the land peacefully and they will enjoy all the land that God had promised for them. They will become a nation among nations during the time of the uh, millennial reign of the Messiah. Uh, so anyway, I hope that helps. It's an excellent question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Our next question will come from Anthony, who is live with us on line one. Good morning, Anthony. You are live with Pastor Carl. Good morning, Pastor Carl. How are you doing this morning? Hey, doing well. Thanks for calling, Anthony. What can we do to help? Question, Pastor. I'm trying to get a good understanding. I've heard... Um, um, you say when you preach sometimes that we're talking about children of God. How do we see or do we measure the love? You know, you say that, well, I don't love your children like I do my children. Again, we have the body of Christ. I guess we can say joined by the same blood brothers and sisters in Christ, what does that actually mean, or do we just say it just to be saying that we are brothers and sisters in Christ? Should it mean more than just saying it? And uh, are we as a church or any church as a family, if they are brothers and sisters in Christ, are we somewhat responsible to be accountable to them as well. And is there, I don't sound, is there a measurement of how deep a love should go, whether you are blood family from the same mom and dad or blood family from the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Mm. That's my question. And it might be a little long question, but if you could help me out in that, I appreciate it. Yeah, so it's a, it is a great question. So what comes to my mind initially is First uh, John chapter three, and there in First John three it says, "See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are." For this reason, the world does not know Him because it did not know Him, it does not know us because it did not know Him, beloved. 
Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him, the return purifies himself as he is pure. So he is definitely distinguishing the people of God uh, here, again, as promised in this new covenant where God would join us together, how by the Holy Spirit. And so we speak, as you mentioned, the body of Christ. The body of Christ did not exist in the Old Testament. Someone asked me recently, I, I do this national show once a month, and it goes out to between five and 800 stations, depending on whether I'm on the weekend edition. Um, and the question that was asked they wanted me to answer is, are Old Testament saints considered members of the body of Christ? And if not, why not? And my answer was, no, they are not considered members of the body of Christ. They could not be considered members of the body of Christ for the simple reason that the Spirit of God had not yet been given. And so that was the promise of the new covenant from this question that just came in from Kentucky, that God would place his spirit in us. That's called the baptism of the spirit. And so there's a number of passages we could link and weave together, but short answer is, is that when the spirit baptizes believers, he makes them members of the church, and the term church is equivalent with the body of Christ. And so that makes us a singular unit. And Paul uses even that analogy in 1 Corinthians 12 of the physical body to remind us of our dependency on one another because no one person has this, all the spiritual gifts. And so we need each other just as the members of the physical body need each other in order to be able to function properly. And so he then goes on to say here in 1 John 3, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And again, he's underscoring that if anyone is in Christ, to use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5, he is a new creation, his old life has passed away, and everything's become new. And so we're not speaking here of perfection, clearly not, because he's just underscored if we say we have no sin in 1 John 1, we're deceiving ourselves. And then he'll say, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if you do sin. So he's not talking about perfection, but he is speaking about a new direction, a new practice, that when someone is born from above, their life changes. And if the person's life does not fundamentally change, it typically simply means they have never truly been born again. They may make a profession, but without any really true conversion on the inside. And so, yes, we are joined together. And the first line of defense in terms of loving one another, and, and let me just say parenthetically, I know sometimes um, politicians, even preachers, speak to the fact that we're all children of God, and that's not true. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, that is, or even to those who believe in his name. So we become something we weren't before. Why? Because God imparts new life in us. My children have my life in them, so they are my children. When God imparts God the Spirit in us, we become his child. Now, in a creative sense, we, you can say we're children of God. 
But in a spiritual sense, no, only those who've been born from above. With that said, we don't disrespect the unbeliever because there go I by the grace of God, and it was only by an intervention of grace that I came to faith. Um, and not to mention they are made in the image and likeness of God. And so we are to take the gospel of forgiveness to them. But we are members of one another, and that membership expresses itself, as First Corinthians 12 underscores, first on a local church level. So we can say, well, I'm a member of the body of Christ, but, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not really involved with anyone, you know, I just, you know, watch it on TV. No, you can't obey the commandments that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ apart from a local church expression. And so there is the one another commands in the New Testament, and they're very, very important commands. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept each other. Don't bite and devour each other. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive each other. And so confess your, you know, on and on and on and on, all these one another passages that really express how we show that love. And so if we're not engaged in a local fellowship where we get to know people, you can't know everyone. The average church member who's engaged, who's involved, is only typically going to know around 50 to 60 people by name. But getting to know those 50 or 60 by name is really important. It doesn't matter if the church is 300 or 3,000. Typically, surveys show, Barna and others, that you'll know about 50 to 60 people by name. But you can't use your gifts, serve the body, build up the body, obey the one another commands of New Testament uh, admonitions if we're, if we're forsaking our assembling together. So anyway, there was a lot of questions in there. I hope I hit on some of the high points, Anthony. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next question comes from Kent out of Bluffton, South Carolina. He would like to know why the church is so seemingly devoid of the study of the enemy. As a combat-disabled former Marine, it seems to me that this particular battle, as alluded, for a lack of better word at the moment, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, is perhaps fatally overlooked, if not dismissed, as a central uh, telling to the gospel. That is, without sin ushered in by Satan, there is no need for redemption by the blood of the Lamb of God in Jesus any more than a Marine needs to direct, fire, direct fires for effect to elim eliminate the enemy. Well, it's a good question. You have to know your en enemy. Uh, the famous World War II General uh, MacArthur underscored that you have to know the enemy, know what you're up against to be able to, you know, approach him in a maximum way. And that's certainly true biblically. You mentioned Ephesians 6, but that's really just one of a ton of passages in the Word of God. And here's the problem uh, that this brother from, I guess, Bluffton is asking. Here's the problem. The reason there's such ignorance as to who the enemy is is because we've jettisoned and abandoned expository preaching. Because if you preach the Bible expositionally over and over and over again, beginning in Genesis, you are going to uh, learn about the wiles of the devil, that we have a real enemy to whom we should be aware of. And so a pastor could be in the Gospel of John and you know, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, saying John 8. That assumes that not everyone is identified with the living Lord. And these are religious people to whom he's saying. 
in John 10, he says, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal, but I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Again, a real enemy. Paul would say that um, um, Satan is not to take advantage of us because we're not to be ignorant of his schemes. And the word scheme there is the Greek word methodia. We get our word methodology. We're to understand his methodologies. Uh, he speaks of the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And so that tells us we're in a spiritual battle that as we go out to, to carry the gospel to an unbelieving world, we need to do it with with wisdom, with the help of God. He reminds us how Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And then I'll say in the next verse, and if he disguises himself as an angel of light, so don't his servants, his ministers. Meaning we have people in the ministry, in the pulpit, knowingly or not, they're enemies of the church. They are falling sometimes under the schemes of the devil. And sometimes a Christian pastor, a true Christian pastor, can be deceived, and that's why we're commanded not to be deceived. A real Christian can be deceived and caught up in things that he shouldn't be, and that's where pastors are to protect the flock. Um, Paul in Ephesians, earlier in Ephesians, you quote Ephesians 6, be angry but do not sin. Why? He said, don't let the sun go down on your anger lest you give the devil an opportunity. And the word opportunity there is actually a military term. It means a beachhead. In other words, you go to bed angry with unresolved problems in your heart. You are potentially giving the devil a foothold in your life to be able to wreak havoc. That's why I always tell couples in premarital counseling and extramarital counseling, you never go to bed back to back. You resolve the problem before you go to bed. And even if you can't totally understand it, you can say, we forgive each other. We maybe at this point agree to disagree, but we're going to love one another and we're not going to let the sun go down on our anger. That is to say, we're not going to go to bed at night with this unresolved anger in our heart. And so here in the passage that I've turned to, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Why? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, think about that contextually. Uh, they thought the struggle was between Jews and Gentiles, flesh and blood, in the early church. And Paul is addressing that problem that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been removed, that God made us into this one body. And so the real enemy, he is saying, is not your wife, it's not your fellow Christian brother, uh, it's not flesh and blood, but the real enemy is against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So yeah, he goes on and he describes the armor of God. And again, if a pastor is teaching expositionally, he's going to cover those things. Even if he's not preaching Ephesians 6, he's going to cover those things. Be of sober spirit, Peter will write. Be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. James will say, you know, submit to God, uh, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So yes, there is a spiritual battle. And why is there such ignorance? Because expository preaching has been abandoned for the 20 to 25 minute sermon, fluff and stuff, no real substance, a lot of cute little stories, many times stories about the pastor just talking about himself instead of preaching the Word of God. And there's power in the Word. It's the Word that God uses to convert. 
and it's the word that God uses to grow. Sanctify them in the truth. Jesus said, your word is truth. That's what God uses to grow us. And so like newborn babes, we're to long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow. So I make no apology for opening the Bible on Sunday morning and preaching for an hour. My thought is if someone's heart is open and they're searching for the gospel, God's spirit will use that. An hour will not write them off. Oh, you can't can't preach for an hour if you want to reach the unchurched. Not if you want to reach the unchurched that's in love with sin. But if there's an unchurched person out there who is looking and being stirred by the Spirit of God and drawn by Him, you're going to reach them because the Word of God is powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And if a person is hungry, uh, look, I'm not interested in preaching sermonettes. Uh, I want to make disciples, not Christianettes. And so I preach the Word of God. Does that mean some people won't come back? Yes, that's okay. My job is not to please them, but to please God. And relatively speaking, our service of an hour and a half is short compared to services of 100 years ago and during the time of the Reformation when the church met on the Lord's Day for two and three hours at a time. But we live in a day of distraction, a day where sin is uh, finding a a foothold in the lives of people in a day of lukewarmness. And so I would look, I'd rather have 10 people who are on fire for God than 10,000 people who are lukewarm and indifferent. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Paul out of Bluffton, South Carolina. He writes, I realize that this is not a salvation issue, but I would appreciate you clarifying the following. In the Bible, the word tongues is found 30 times. Some brothers that I know and love believe that it is a gift where one speaks an entirely foreign, unknown language or gibberish for a lack of better definition. I've been listening to Walter Martin and his series on hermeneutics, and he is very clear that the Greek translates to English as a dialect or language, meaning an existing language. Is this true in all uh, representations of tongues in the Bible? Some translations say a new tongue. Also, just curious, was English a language when the New Testament was written, and could English be one of those new tongues that is referenced? Well, no, English was not a language when the Scripture was written, but that's not what's in view by a new tongue. Um, I, I asked a question on Sunday morning. I said, which theological group does the following? erratic jerking, uncontrollable laughter. You know, we saw the laughter revivals where people even barked like dogs. Getting slain in the spirit, that's where you see some evangelist touch someone and he falls down or maybe 50 people fall down backwards. Um, The promoting of prophecy, the promoting of new revelation not heard before in speaking of tongues. Which groups would you say would that represent? You'd be correct if you said Charismatics or Pentecostals or the World Faith Movement or this new growing cult, especially in Western Europe, called the New Apostolic Reformation. But you would be equally correct if you said Hinduism because there's a branch within Hinduism known as Hinduism Kundalini, which I myself witnessed when I was in India in New Delhi. And these people do the exact same things that these groups today under the name and banner of Christianity do. 
So when you come to the book of Acts and you come to Acts chapter 2, it's very, very specific in terms of the languages that were spoken. In fact, there are 15 specific languages that are mentioned. Parthian, Median, Elam, Mesopotamian, Judean, Cappadocian, Pontus, Asian, Phrygian. And again, these are all like the Asian is a Roman provincial language, including Latin and Phrygian, which is kind of a Greek Anatolian language, and Pamphylian, Egyptian, or Coptic, you could say, or Libyan, which is kind of a blend of Berber and Greek, and Rome being pure Latin, and Crete being Crete and Greek. And so you have 15 different languages that are represented. That's what they spoke. Remember, these are Galileans who spoke kind of a pidgin Aramaic. They were considered somewhat as the Hicks. And so these Hicks, 120 of them, came out of this house, and a miracle took place where they spoke in a literal known language. And not only does he use the word glossolalia for a known language, it's found in no other way in both inside and outside of the Bible. Uh, we're not talking about the ecstatic utterance that Hindus and some of my dear Pentecostals friends are doing. We're talking about a real language, and not just a real language. He uses a second word, the Greek word dialectos, that speaks of a dialect within the language. That was the miracle. And so sometimes Pentecostals accuse someone like myself, well, you don't believe in the miraculous. And all I would say in love is you diminish the miraculous. You rewrite the miraculous. What you are doing is no different from what unbelievers do. And again, I don't have enough hands and toes and feet. I just had a guy come to meet the pastor recently who came via the invitation of a chaplain who had been in an Assemblies of God church but didn't know what the gospel was. And so I meet these people who come from Assemblies and Pentecostal and World Faith, and, you know, they've spoken in tongues. You ask them how sure they are they'd go to heaven, 50%. What do you think you'd have to do to be 100? Maybe speak in more tongues, maybe live better. And did they have some kind of experience? Yes. But you don't put experience above the authority of Scripture. Experience is always to be in submission to the authority of Scripture. Jesus won in the Olivet Discourse that during the time of the Great Tribulation as the birth pangs are unfolding, that people will come in his name claiming to be the Messiah. They would do great signs and wonders so as to, see, to deceive the elect. Listen, the evil one can do miracles. Uh, he can mimic what God does. That's what he does as an angel of light. And so you don't conclude, well, I had this miracle. I spoke in a tongue, therefore it must be of God. No, there's all kinds of fake imitations. And you know when someone comes and they don't know what the gospel is, though they've had some of these so-called experiences, that they clearly could not have had an experience from God. Because in Scripture, spiritual gifts are given to those who are born again. And it's not given to unbelievers. And so spiritual gifts in the New Testament are given only to save people. Now, the, the, the term new tongues, um, let me just turn to uh, Mark chapter 16. And uh, he is giving the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who is believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who is disbelieved shall be condemned. So he makes it very clear that it's your unbelief. He doesn't say he who is disbelieved and not been baptized shall be condemned. 
is simply saying he was believed and has been baptized because that was the public confession of faith that always took place after conversion. That person has the real item. Why? Because if you know the Lord Jesus on the inside, you'll confess him on the outside. And so if someone is unwilling to confess him before men, he won't confess them before the Father. And that confession in the New Testament early church was done in baptism. If you don't understand that, uh, write us at Search the Scriptures, and we'll send you a 30-page handout on what the Bible says about baptism. You can study it for yourself. Then he says, these signs will accompany those who have believed in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. And in terms of new tongues, he is speaking of a tongue that is new to the speaker. So the miracle of Acts 2 would be for me, say, as a Greek to speak perfect Latin, not knowing Roman Latin. Or me, as someone who speaks Aramaic, now speaking perfect Parthian. Or in modern day, me as an English speaker, speaking Chinese, but not just any kind of Chinese, but Mandarin Chinese. Or a Chinese person who knows zero English, speaking English, but not just everyday English, but Southern English, or maybe Boston English, a dialect within. That was the miracle. And so how do they get around it? They get around it using one other passage of Scripture. So again, it's new. The new language is new to the speaker. And it's not a new language that didn't exist before. But they try to take the Mark 16 passage and bleed it together with 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. So he's using here hyperbole to draw home a point. And remember, 1 Corinthians 13, what we often call the love chapter, is sandwiched between chapters 12 and 14. And so 12, 13, and 14, there's one subject, and it's the subject of spiritual gifts. And so he is reminding them that their exercise of spiritual gifts was not being done in a loving way. And so to underscore using hyperbole, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, there's only one in the whole universe who knows all mysteries and all knowledge, and that's God himself. But he's saying, if that were possible, and I didn't have love. And so when he says, if I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, men don't speak in angelic languages. He's using, again, hyperbole. He's not endorsing the speaking of an angelic language. And that's what they say. Well, this gibberish, so to speak, though it's not a recognizable language, it's an angelic language. No, he's using hyperbole. And if you rip the scripture out of context, you make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And so, my dear friends, and what do they do? They are putting experience over the authority of scripture. And so, typically, in the groups I just mentioned, they historically teach, and as a general rule, they teach, though there may be an exception, that you can even lose your salvation. Why do they do that? Experiential theology. Oh, we had Joe Blow in our church, and he was active, and he was a deacon. Now he rejects the gospel, and he's a follower of Buddha. You see, he had salvation, and he lost it. No, he never had it to begin with. First John 2, 19, if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they went out from us indicates they were not really of us to begin with. That is, if you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never, ever, ever had it to begin with. And that's what he is underscoring. You do not do your theology by experience. 
your experience must be put in subjection to the authority of Scripture. And this Sunday's message is important. You want to come and hear it. If you don't have a church home, Community Bible Church, you can live stream at US at 9.15 or 11, but don't let your live stream be a substitute for local church involvement. It's there for people who can't make it to a church service, not to become a substitute for a church service. But many a person, because they can't find a healthy church, they get vitamin supplements off of live streams, and that's okay, but be involved in a local assembly on the Lord's Day. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Stephanie out of Portland, Oregon. She would like to know, what is your opinion of N.T. Wright? N.T. Wright, I nickname him N.T. Wrong. He's just he's just all mixed up. He, You know, look, if it's something new, it's not true. So N.T. Wright comes up with this new view of Paul in how to understand justification. And by the way, his new view is not biblically grounded. In fact, it's Roman Catholic. You see, the Roman Catholic Church does not deny uh, that a man— Uh, that Jesus, the God-man, died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, and that you must put your faith in Christ. They just say that's not enough. And so they teach faith in Christ plus good works equals or equates to salvation. That's N.T. Wright in a nutshell. He was teaching and is teaching falsely what we might call infused righteousness instead of imputed righteousness. When you believe, the moment you believe, you are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. And then because you are credited with Christ's righteousness, he makes you a temple of the Spirit. And so biblically, faith in Christ alone, meaning in his death, burial, and resurrection, not just to put the next meal on the table or to to keep you healthy or safe, but trusting him for something he already did, that when you put your faith in the gospel, then you are credited with salvation. In good works or on the right side of salvation, faith in Christ equals salvation plus good works. They're the fruit, not the root. And so N.T. right is N.T. wrong. He is a heretic. He is a false teacher. He brought confusion into the church. And people who follow him are ignorant of the scriptures. Look, the Roman Catholic Church teaches you get grace through the sacramental system, which helps you to do works that helps you in turn to earn and merit salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. God either saves you all by himself without any help from you, contrary to N.T. Wright's teaching, or he does not save you at all. Good question. I guess we're out of time. Uh, thanks for joining us today for the Bible line. And if you don't have a church, I invite you to Community Bible Church. You can go to communitybiblechurch.us for meeting places and times of services and directions. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. Mm-hmm.